Hello everyone, welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. Today I am recording in a different location. Normally I actually just uh, pull out the microphones in my video editing studio in Basha where I work and I have either uh, Robin, Reverend Robin King, the minister at the Basha United Church and Pinocchio United Church come in and speak with me. We sit down over a casual cup of coffee once a week, usually on a Tuesday or Wednesday when we can both fit it into our schedules and we'll talk about anything from uh, the Easter story we've been kind of unpacking lately because we're just through Easter uh, through to just any topic that relates to faith and exploring the way we live and the way we answer the big questions of being human. Uh, and with that, we also bring different guests onto the show. So today I'm at the uh, Camrose Hospice Society sitting with Bill Harder, and he's my guest today. Bill, thank you so much for inviting me to come up here and bring my microphones and have a conversation with you today. Our pleasure, Ben. I'm, I'm so really excited. looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. So how I met Bill... Um, I guess we just met when you came to Basha, uh, which was, uh, when was that? That was almost... Last November, yeah, October or November. it was about six or seven months ago. Yeah. Uh, and you had come to the Basha United Church to do a grieving workshop, mm-hmm. which I, I attended because I had lost my nephew uh, not long ago mm. and am still in that grieving process. And so my parents came as well, and we, the three of us, attended the workshop, and it was way more powerful than I was anticipating it to be. I, I've never been through something like that before. Um, it, it's not something I'd ever thought that you would go and learn about, you know, to, to go and take in like almost training of like, this is how to grieve, and this is what grieving can look like, and mm. um, just to grieve well. Like this whole world of, of grief, even though I'd lost other people before in the past. It was not something I'd looked at in that light. So the the teaching that you brought in your presentation in that workshop was really powerful for me. And I, I think everyone there got a lot out of it. So thanks again for coming and bringing that to our community. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to talk to you about today is a little bit about your own story and how you got into this work, but also what is the work that you're doing here in this community, in your community, in, in cameras, and why the need for that. So... Um, we'll, we'll just dive right into it. So Bill, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you, uh, you got into the work that you're doing. Sure. Uh, the Reader's Digest version, of course. Yes. <laughs> and so that starts with quite a, a, several decades of religious vocation. Okay. So I, I started out doing youth work with several churches. I worked for a Lutheran Bible camp as a director there for a few years. Then I ended up doing a degree in sociology and a a theological degree, bachelor degree. And uh, the way one's life wanders about, I was hardwood flooring and various other bits and pieces. And a mentor one day said to me, you know, you'd probably enjoy uh, parish work. And I said, "Ah, I don't know, maybe. And then he said, well, if you were going to do parish work, you'd probably want to be ordained to word and sacrament. I think that would be good for you. And I said, yeah, I don't know, maybe. I went home and thought about that, and I said to my wife, I think I know what we need to do. And she said, what? I think we need to sell our home, leave our kids behind, move to Saskatoon, and so I can go to seminary. We'd never talked about it ever. And this was in August. <laughs> Did she think you were joking? No, no. She just looked at me, and she said, okay. And so uh, we... 
the oldest had just graduated from high school. Uh, we have a blended family, so they were back and forth with other yeah. households. And in a month, we'd sold our house. And in January, we moved to Saskatoon in a snowstorm. And wow. I started school. Uh, so I did a Master of Divinity and was consequently ordained as a Lutheran pastor in 2002. Okay. So then I did five years of that uh, locally at Armina. Pulled out assessing like where I needed to be in life and just a few questions and wanting to explore some of these gifts beyond the walls of the church. Uh, worked at Augustana Library for two and a half years then. Yeah. Got itchy again for parish work, went back in at Balfe for four and a half years. And then just felt like I'd explored religious vocation to the depth that I needed to. And so I pulled myself off the roster, left the church in really good terms. Balfe was a fantastic experience, as was Armina. Deep, deep relationships and connection. Yeah. And free-floated for a little while. Then I recertified or, or certified as a compassion fatigue educator. So caregiver fatigue, compassion fatigue, people who are in frontline caregiver roles, first responders, counselors, uh, teachers. Yeah. And then certified as a loss and grief counselor. And that's where three years ago uh, this month, I was hired on by hospice. Okay, so and that's the space that we're in right now. So tell me a little bit about the, the organization and what, what hospice is. Sure. So in 2011, uh, a board was formed and the organization received charitable status as a society. <clears throat> they began their first training of volunteers in 2012. Their vision to start was, let's buy a little old house in Camrose and renovate it for a couple of rooms for people who are actively dying. Oh, that that wasn't horribly feasible, really. And but that is kind of the concept of a hospice in general. Like, so I think most people know what a what a hospice is. Like, it's generally a, um, an end of the end of the road place for someone to be comfortable while they are. If you if you know that they're terminal, but not for like a long extended period of time. Am I right? Yeah. So that historically that would be a bit a bit of the picture. We want to expand that though. And recognize that the word palliative care, if uh, you go to your doctor today and he gives you a diagnosis and says, Ben, we're going to put on your chart that you're palliative, it doesn't mean that you're actively dying. It means you have a condition for which there's no cure. Right. It could so, last years. could last years. MS, uh, ALS would be palliative conditions. Okay. Um, COPD, heart, uh, liver disease, um, end-stage cancer. Uh, would all be palliative conditions for which you might live for a decade or more, but we don't have a cure for it. So the interest medically is quality of life rather than curative. Right. The last part of a palliative journey is actively dying, that last couple of weeks. Our hospice society is interested in that whole journey. And so we train volunteers hmm. to go into people's homes who have a chronic illness to provide um, social, emotional, spiritual support to them, sometimes practical supports, all non-medical, and to, to assess with them what would raise your quality of life today? What would make things better for you? And mm -hmm. how can we partner with you in making that happen? Got it. And a big part of that is socialization, social isolation, and, uh. and helping fill that void where they don't have social connection anymore. So of these 80 volunteers we have trained, 
a good number of them are really going into people's homes or long-term care centers to be with people who are feeling more and more isolated as a consequence of their illness. So they'll go in as a volunteer to um, actually directly spend time with that person or to help them figure out ways that they can have more socialization yeah, with others. Both. both. Okay. Yeah. So they're kind of like a social consultant. Yeah. We, <laughs> going call, in them, and... we call them navigators. Oh, okay. And then, of course, we do have volunteers. It could be the same person that's going to St. Mary's Hospital, Daysland Hospital, uh, Tofield Hospital, or the long-term care centers, and they're sitting bedside with people who are actively right. dying. They're giving respite to families so they can get away mm. and sleep. Um, yeah. They're with people who have no family, and they're making sure that person doesn't die alone. Ugh. Right? Uh, and this hits isn't me just, right in the guts. This isn't just elders, Ben. Right, course, so the, yeah, the last person I was uh, sitting with was 24 years old and dying from cancer. Oh. Um, and some of the grief care I've done has been for parents who've had uh, teens or young adults die from cancer or accidents. So while predominantly we're dealing with, with elders, not entirely, and our volunteers cover the spectrum from early 20s to 80, and the people we serve cover that same spectrum. Mm. You're, you, you'd see so much, and I'm sure you have some, uh, some very moving and difficult stories that you could share. But what I'm curious about is how do you prepare yourself when for, and how do you prepare volunteers to deal with what could be anything from infant loss to, you know, I don't want to normalize, you know, the death of, of the elderly, but we're, as a culture, we're a little bit more used to that we're conditioned to like it's it's more acceptable for our mm. grandparents to pass away because we know it's more inevitable it's where their health is declining maybe their quality of life is declining there's there's a different flavor of grief to that than an accident or an unexpected health crisis of you know a child with leukemia or um a stillborn child like those those grief journeys i'm sure must be very different to prepare yourself for or for a volunteer to walk into how do you how do you um ready yourself for that i mean your your story that you just shared of having your background in um uh you know as a as a minister would no doubt be part of that but emotionally and spiritually how have you found that you're able to to show up for that and 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 take all of that in the approach that hospice started with in 2011 was contemplative in nature. So a number of board members at the time in the founding board took training, uh, Victoria Hospice offered training. One of our board members went down to the States and took training with Yo uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, um, who founded a, a Zen center focused on hospice and palliative care. And so what was brought back from that was a training that that gathers around the idea of being self-aware. Who am I stepping into this room? So while our training offers lots of practical things, necessary tools, those tools are simply equipment we pick up. And what we really are looking to inculcate in our training is 
know who you are, know what is being activated in you when you come face to face with something and be present to what arises so you can you can be in touch with you and thus be present to the pain and suffering mm. of what's before you. We are very frank about the telling people it takes great courage to step into the suffering of another person's room and space. So before we come to the door, we need to pause. We need to take a good breath and still ourselves. And we need to be listening to what's going on in us and so that we can be listening to what's going on in this whole room with this person, whoever mm. they are, wherever they are. And that takes practice and, and it takes soul. Yeah. It's it, deep work. It's deep, deep human work. It, it is. And like you said, you, that self-awareness that would be required is not something that everyone practices so it it is a it's a there's a skill set involved or there's a learning how to do that of how to have that self-awareness but even if you have the knowledge there's a practicing of it that a zen master who's been meditating for 40 years is still practicing in, in essence so for sure. um do you have like a daily practice that helps you to whether you're helping someone in their grief journey or whether you're meeting with a client or you're at a uh, bedside or just having breakfast with your family, do you, what are the things that help you to stay kind of self-aware and, and present and just in your, uh, in your own life aware and, and engaged in that, in that practice? I went for a walk yesterday afternoon with my dog on the ski trails south of Camerals. They're beautiful, kilometers and kilometers of trails through the woods. And I was aware of slowing myself down, slowing my steps down, and as if my foot was in love with the earth and it didn't want to leave it, and every step was a slight pulling away and giving me that chance to to let everything slow down, let these steps, just every step be precious. And that doesn't have to be out in the woods. So at the other end of this building is our other office. It's a wee bit of a trek. And I have the opportunity every time I go down to check the printer, to slow my steps down, to take in the feel and the sound of what's going on around me. I'm not perfectly engaging that, of course, at every single moment. Right. But always growing and, and endeavoring to be aware. If I can be aware of, oh, there's a spider coming down from the ceiling right there. And oh, there's a little piece of uh, crud on the carpet. And just to take it in, no judgment, just I'm here. This is happening in my world. I'm breathing. That growing awareness allows me to be in touch with what my internal world is doing. If I can do it with the external world, then mm -hmm. I'll learn to do it with my internal world. It's so... It sounds almost comically easy, yeah. but it is so difficult. Mm -hmm. And it, until you actually try to, because I'm, I'm very interested in this whole world of just um, self-awareness, being present, meditation. Um, it was my birthday on the weekend and my wife got me a yoga mat and a meditation pillow for mm. my birthday mm. because I'm really into this stuff. And we've actually talked about, um, I've actually had several guests on the podcast who talk about um, meditation being a really central part of their spiritual journey, a part of their daily practice. Um, every, everyone from a yoga teacher 
to, and you probably know Leah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Leah's been on the show, uh, and others who just uh, are either just beginning or quite advanced in learning about about meditation. And uh, I also listen to other podcasts where people talk a lot about this uh, this sort of thing. And I think that until you actually put some time into trying to do it, you can't realize how difficult it is to stop your brain. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, I've, I've really found that um, as, of, as I'm now entering my like mid and late 30s, I'm finding that it's, and maybe it is part of, partly because I'm grieving some losses that it's making it more difficult, but I find it harder to just fall asleep at night than I used to when I was in my late twenties or early thirties and, uh, you know, more carefree and not even thinking about, you know, my own mortality or anything. And now it's like, these things are coming crashing in and, and, uh, clouding my, my mind when I'm just trying to, to just be present or trying to fall asleep at night and laying in bed. And, and uh, I don't know, maybe engaging and wrestling with the struggle of being present and quieting, quieting the mind makes the little, you know, the ticking of the clock sound so much louder because you're, you're starting to pay attention to it. I don't know. But anyway, that's just my, my own experience with what you're sharing is that it is very difficult work to do, but at the same time, so important and so rewarding, especially for people like you who are stepping into another human being's most vulnerable and challenging moments of life and playing an important role in that for them. Like you're, you're holding space for someone who is dying or for someone who is reeling from the loss of someone who has just died. You know, I think if you want to really dive into awakening to yourself and to this world and to the divine and whatever, uh, invite loss into your life (laughs) because we, we are about loss. We are a species that is dependent upon loss with only a few exceptions. I can name, um, salt, maybe honey, possibly milk. I'm not sure. Anything we consume requires a death. Every seed that we consume will probably, Mm -hmm. whatever life force is in the seed is going to die every bit of lettuce, those cells are going to die, obviously meat. And, you know, basically we live because something dies and we will die. Everything on earth that is alive, we accept has an end point to it. Yeah. And so we we're actually dependent on this idea of death. And in, in a death averse culture, which we have become in the last 120 years or so, we have utterly forgotten the value of letting ourselves be saturated with loss, even at the same time as we are surrounded by and filled with new life. At this very moment, you and I are losing probably hundreds of thousands of body cells are being dying and being sloughed off. I'm just not aware of it. And they are also at the same time being replicated and replenished, Mm -hmm. right? We just don't know that, but our bodies are a living example of this balance of things starting and things ending and we depend on it Mm -hmm. if we want to do soul the deep soul work of awakening it is going to be uh, dancing with our losses and it is really hard for our mind to be chattery when a catastrophic loss has happened 
and all of a sudden our prefrontal cortex, which we know from, from research, starts to um, have diminished capacity. Mm -hmm. We our thinking naturally slows, uh, or or finds a fine point that it focuses on, and so many of these people who have come to share their story with me in grief will tell me that they feel like they're in a fog, which neurobiologically is the prefrontal cortex with its diminished capacity. And that, to me, that sounds like quietness. It sounds like something is stilling, like I can't think, I can't remember. And I, I would counsel them, let yourself rest into that, into that fogginess and know that for maybe the first time in your life you're going to experience something that is just the quieting and the need for breath and to survive at the edge of the cliff where in those first months after a catastrophic loss you are you're at a cliff's edge in despair and it's going to be one of the most transformative and fermenting times and probably the most searing awful pain you'll ever feel so you describe that as uh, a positive, like mm -hmm. a rewarding thing, like this, the transformative. Yeah, maybe the as opposed to and rewarding aren't, aren't the best words, but I love how you said if you want to do the deepest soul work that you can do, invite loss into your life. Mm -hmm. But we're like that's a terrifying prospect. <laughs> it should be, <laughs> and right, yeah, it, it should, should be. be. So why, why is it? Um, maybe unwise is a good word, to continually insulate or distance ourselves from feeling loss. Because like you said, it is inevitable. Loss is all around us and no one is guaranteed that they're going to come home from work tomorrow or today. Mm -hmm. um, every, every breath, each breath is, is, a, is a, a gift, really. So how, um, how, is, how is it that we've come to... to to live in such a way that we just like, nope, don't want to, don't want to look at that. Don't want to deal with it. Don't want to think about it. Don't want to experience it to the point that you have people who are dying alone. Mm -hmm. Like that shouldn't be. Well, so let's just say unpacking. That's probably a huge conversation. One small response from my part would be, we don't trust that we have the courage and the strength to be in our own pain. So regardless of whether that's a pain from a, a, a loss, bereavement or other kinds of loss, or pain from trauma, which is also loss, or, or physical pain, which is also loss. So pain of loss, we just don't know. We actually don't know if we have the courage and the strength to be in it. So what we do is we lean away from the pain because we're not sure. Mm -hmm. And the further we lean away from it, the more destructive that pain becomes. That loss becomes destructive when it is not fermenting and moving within us and shearing off the pieces that are meant to be left behind and bringing us down to a more purified or rarefied understanding of who we are. Mm. All of our losses will shear something away from us let's say your spouse dies, your life partner. That is going to utterly disrupt your world, both externally as patterns of, of living are, are broken 
and for sure internally as the attachment and the understanding and and hopefully love that was present is challenged and radically changed. In that, pieces of our self-understanding are going to break away. A little bit like if we were made out of Lego blocks, the little oneers, yeah, you know, just one big Lego person, <laughs> uh, the loss breaks off a bunch of these and they just scatter about on the floor. And for a, for a great deal of time, we feel very lost in that. We, we simply don't know who we are anymore. What sorrow does is it collects back some of those bits that need to be with us, but it doesn't put them in the same place. So we don't move forward from that as a replica of ourselves. We move forward recreated. And it's not comfortable because we have to learn what does it mean to be this shape now, this, mm. this who I am. All of that is transformation. If sorrow isn't allowed to do the work of bringing those pieces back, that's destructive. But we lose something that was meant to be re regained. Mm. And so there's lots of examples of people in loss who fall in, go down to the cliff's edge of despair and fall off of it. And they're just lost. And some of them die in that despair. Some, well, I guess they all die ultimately. If, they, if, if it's not transformative, it will kill us in the long run, whether it's through addictions or um, depression um, the development of a mental illness. If it's transformative and it has its own sort of geological time, it will change us in ways we could never predict. I don't want to glorify it and say, you know, this is all so nice. It's horrible. It is metamorphosis, right? Mm -hmm. You talked about the, I yeah. remember that word from your workshop and thinking, wow, that I've never thought about it that way. But to, even just the way you describe sorrowing as this verb that you're, that it's work that you're doing. You're, mm -hmm. you're sorrowing as in it's an important task that has to get done or it will leave this, you know, toxic kind of energy that needs to go somewhere within your life. If you don't go through the hard work of sorrowing, but we, we even look at the word sorrow as just like, Oh, that person's depressed or that person's it's just viewed as a, a thing to avoid, right? Like who wants, who wants to take on sorrow? Um, but the way you describe it is so different. I, I recommend to your listeners to look up Francis Weller's book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, hmm. and Robert Romanishin's book, The Soul in Grief. Both these authors unpack incredibly beautifully the idea of the soul work of, of our sorrow journey. And in particular, Weller has been informative for me is he describes sorrow as our mentor. And he says, what is being asked is that we'll kneel at the feet of sorrow and uh, as an apprentice. Hmm. And sorrow says, I'll take you on and I will apprentice you and I will teach you the pathway through your loss. And it requires a commitment that you enter this room of sorrow, all of you comes in, all that you ever were, all that you are. And we will explore every nook and cranny of this room safely together. Some of it will be horribly painful and it will tear you. And some of it will be have laughter and joy in it because all of you came into the room. Right. Some of it will be confused and you'll feel lost. And Sorrow says, just trust me. I will carefully guide you. It is my intent that you will be deeper. Francis Weller says, you will ripen. Hmm. And these are, these are heavy laden words, beautiful, rich words. 
It doesn't feel in those first months after a catastrophic loss like this can be real, this transformation. And yet, over and over and over, billions and billions and billions of times over history, humans have found that their, their deep wisdom has fermented in this room of sorrow. I would say unequivocally, leaning away from the pain of this is saying to sorrow, I will not apprentice. Mm -hmm. I will not learn. And what happens, Weller says, is when our sorrow does not find its voice, it comes out in symptoms. So our body, our psyche, our emotions are all going to show symptoms of the distress of leaning away from this pain. And if we use that metaphor of the caterpillar, the cocoon, and the butterfly that you alluded yeah. to, uh, and, and the cocoon being sorrow holding us, and in there, the griever's life is coming unglued, just as the creature literally would, right? It becomes a pile of DNA goo at the bottom, which is horrible, like to imagine literally melting. And that's and, what and, it feels like. And that's what it feels like. When, you, when we have a loss, it just, just everything comes undone. And then molecule by molecule, life rebuilds that creature. And so it does with us. Sorrow holds us so that life can just carefully rebuild itself. And at some juncture, if we don't leave that cocoon, if she doesn't emerge out of the cocoon, she'll suffocate in there, that new creature. And so us too, there comes that point where sorrow says, transformation requires you to re-engage life. Eventually there's a moment where it's, it's time. It's time. And, and we, she emerges, she stands on a twig, and her first thought is not, ooh, I need to drink, or ooh, I want to, I want to fly. Her first thought is, I want to go back to what I had. I didn't ask for this. I want hmm. to go back in the cocoon, melt down, and be a caterpillar, because I knew that. I loved it. It was comfortable. Comfortable. But she doesn't have that choice. So her second question is, am I willing to be in the world differently? If she says no, she'll die. If she says yes, she'll figure out how to fly with some trepidation, and she will have gained something she couldn't have had without the loss. Even though she left something behind, she'll never regain. Yeah, so it's not about better than before. That's it's right. not about, oh, this wonderful gift that I was given through mm. this metamorphosis. It's just new and it's just different. How do I be in the world now without him, her, or it? Whatever yeah. it is we're grieving. Yeah. Yeah. I, another concept that I really loved from your workshop, and I've heard Robin talk about this uh, in sermons as well, is the idea that a loss, your life expands around the loss so that that loss over time doesn't shrink and it doesn't go away and disappear. But you described it as it's still there, but you have expanded mm -hmm. and, and who you are in the world has changed and has expanded so that maybe the pain of that loss over time starts to feel less, uh, less of a focus, less of, it's less overwhelming, but it's still there and it will never be gone. I used to have a, a group of widows that I met with once a month. I called it widow's tea in the parish. And so those maybe a dozen or 15 women would meet at somebody's house for coffee. And we just talked. We just talked about life. Some of these women have been without their husbands for 15 or 20 years, depending on their age and how young they died. I remember this one woman in particular was telling me the story. 
of when he died. And it was about 18 years since he had died. And the tears well up in her eyes. And it's just beautiful. And she has this softness to this grief. Not sharp and prickly like in the first few years. And it, she would not ask for that to be taken away from her. Her life was full of joy. She had good things in it. And when she thought back to him or on anniversaries, this would gently come up and she would hold those tears. They were very sacred to her. To me, it was the pinnacle of what sorrowing is for us, that it softens us. In, in that transformation afterwards, we gain a strength that we could not possibly have known and a softness to us and to the world mm. that was not gifted to us at the beginning. So when, Bill, when you meet with a client or someone who is maybe just at the beginning of a grief journey, what is your advice to them in, the, in practical terms of something they can do today or tomorrow to sorrow in a healthy way? In the first months of after a catastrophic loss, and, and I define that term, catastrophic loss, as any loss that is so fundamental, the relationship was so fundamental to it, that with, to us, that without it, we have no idea who we are. Okay, so after a catastrophic loss, in the first three months, I would just say, just know it is going to be hellish. We can't fix it. You can't drug it away. You cannot avoid it. It is going to be overwhelming for you, and it's going to be painful. You will survive. Just know this is how it is. You will be at the cliff's edge over and over and over for hours, for days, for weeks, and you're not sure in your own heart, what's going to hold you from falling off. Sorrow will hold you back. The cocoon will hold you. You need your village. Just survive. So for that three, four months, I'd like to say there was some easier way, but there just isn't. The reality is it's just horrible, horrible, painful. So cling to whatever you can find in your life. Mm. Cling to it. <clears throat> and, and know that you're going to get through this. I can say that with assurance, not because I know you, but because I know humanity, and we've done this for thousands of years. So we're built for this. We can do it. In that later, the last, the six months after, you know, the last half of the first year, um, then we're doing things like access your village well, your, your trusted village, your close friends, the family you trust, any professionals that you have in your life. And make sure that the people you're with aren't trying to fix you. This isn't a pathology. We're not trying to diagnose and cure this. We are looking to partner with sorrow in a way that makes this transformative. Mostly that's in storytelling. And I use the term remembering and recollecting. Mm -hmm. So to remember is to re-member, to bring back into membership the person I've lost back into the membership of my heart and into my life. And so, as Alan Wolfelt says, we're moving that person from a relationship of presence to one of, of heart, of inside. So it's really important to have people who will listen to the story 10,000 times and not say to you, Bill, you need to move on. Right. Right, because there's no moving on. No. Like, what do you tell the butterfly? Like, you need to get over it. 
<laughs> right? Like that's not going to happen. That's not a thing. You tell the butterfly, I will partner with you to learn, figure out how to be a butterfly. Yeah. Because you don't ever get over a loss. That's a myth. And you don't, you can move forward transformatively different, but you can't go back. Yeah. I had a griever say it's to never me yesterday. Complete. Yeah, that's right. This woman said, my husband said to me, I'm really looking forward to getting you back hmm. to your old, to, your, to you getting back to your old self. And so she tells me this and I said, I counsel you to be aware that you will never be your old self again. And he, he has lost that person. So gently tell him that he will get a new and improved you, a different version of you yeah. that will have joy and will also have sadness and will hold the loss of your babies within you forever. You cannot, mm. you cannot go back. Yeah. Oh, it's, you must see so many different reactions to, I mean, it sounds like the advice that you have based on the learning that you've done and, and no doubt your own grieving that you've done, I'm sure you would bring to it as well. But as you're holding space for people that are in these different, uh, different phases of their own grief journey, you must encounter everything from just sheer denial to anger to um, acceptance and peace. And for you, Bill, what is the, what, what makes this work so fulfilling or like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing or what I want to keep doing when you're holding space for someone and, and encountering whatever reaction and, uh, emotions they might have in that space that you're taking on or hopefully not always taking home, but it's difficult work that you do. We have to do that, which we've been gifted to do good carpenters, plumbers, doctors, whatever, if they've been wired for that. And if their soul came into this world to explore those things, probably best they do it. I, learned some time ago that I came into this world to be a holder of stories. And that's what I need to do. I don't, I'm not a fixer. I'm not even really good at terrible many things, quite frankly. <laughs> and I'm okay with that because I do know what I came into this world for. And that is to bear witness to people's stories. Hmm. So I get really odd experiences. I'm in the grocery store, meet up with somebody I've barely an acquaintance with and we'll start talking and probably they'll tell me their whole life story and then they'll say something like I never told that to anybody before Wow! Uh, and I just know that I was gifted with this ability to inculcate trust I don't understand it I just know what's there and so uh, it doesn't matter what my job is in the parish I realized I was to bear witness to people's stories in hospice, hmm. this is what I do. Whatever I do after hospice, I'll still be me and I'll be yeah. a cup holder for people's stories. I love that visual. Yeah. So, yeah, you're still honoring that same gift that you were born with or developed or that your soul is meant to to share during your time here. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm so tempted to, I have all these questions that I, that I want to throw at you and I'm realizing that the time that we're at and, and thinking that if you're game for it, I would love to have another conversation with you at some point in the future Sure. where we could also talk about 
um, so th like this conversation has been kind of focused on the person who is sorrowing or grieving, but I would also love to, to just talk with you about the person who is dying mm -hmm. and, and that, that work of supporting the dire, the, the person who is, who's coming towards their end, not who's beginning a grief journey, but who's realizing that I'm at the end of my time here. So I don't know how you feel about that. I'm throwing yeah, you on the I would, spot I here. would love to okay, do cool. that. Because I'll give you a teaser. Okay. Okay. The 20 second teaser. <laughs> this woman's mother was dying and the daughter, adult daughter, never told her mom that her mom was dying. She never said, mom, you know, you're dying. She sat with her mom and her mom became non-responsive. And then her mom died. And she had this terrible guilt. I never told my mom she was dying. And I said, what in the world makes you think your mom didn't know she was dying? Hmm. In, our, in our end time, all of us is preparing for this transition. Our body is physically doing necessary things to conserve energy, to pull it within itself. It starts pulling out from the extremities into the, to the middle of the us. The core, yeah. Yeah. And so also our emotions and our thoughts. Hmm. Everything is pulling back. And whatever soul is, by one's own personal definition, it's doing a bunch of work of, of, of preparing us for that, that in some Buddhist thought, consider just a, a meditation, that final meditation. I said, she without doubt knew. She wasn't waiting for you to confirm what her whole entire being had engaged. Right. You are without guilt here. Your role was to bear witness to her passing and you did it admirably and with courage. And just to be present with her. Yeah. Yeah. But so I, we can impact that more next yeah, time. I, and so there's choose. so many other questions that it makes me think about that even just around, you know, with your background as a Lutheran pastor, you have uh, a theological, you know, view of the world and you have your, and, and I think any, any good pastor, minister, leadership in, in any um, religious context needs to uh, refrain from projecting their own theolo theology onto the people who they are ministering to. I think that just goes without saying mm -hmm. that, uh, that religion in, at its best is not about telling people what to think and what to believe and this is the truth and just, just trust me, I, I know better than you. But, but we have a little bit of that um, stigma as religious organizations or institutions that it can be looked at as um, just just uh, follow with blind faith and just listen to what I say and live the way that I'm telling you to live from this book and you'll be good. And, and there, there is a little bit of that public view, I think, sometimes. But I am curious about how someone who is a religious leader then goes in, how do you take on the challenge of supporting people who have any wide variety of of spiritual views themselves without bringing your theology into that role. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I, I did two things. One was I left religious vocation and in so doing, I, a, a different version of me arose, a different part of me, I guess. Second thing is I adopt the infinite, round room of windows perspective. So 
there is this huge round room with vertical panes of glass. It's, it's infinitely large. Every pane of glass is one person's perspective on life and the world. It's complete for them. It's not right or wrong. It's just that's how they see the world. Shift over five feet and you're looking at an entirely different pane of glass. It's not right or wrong. It reflects that person's experience and life perspective entirely, their consciousness. Mm. This is what life is for them at this juncture. I have a pane of glass. I can also, though, I can shift away and I can look at yours. It doesn't cost me anything. It doesn't require me to buy into that pain, to adopt it. I can simply hold that view and realize that is complete for you. And in so doing, I'm enriched because I learn this infinite, you know, 7.5 billion panes of glass, one for every one of us. And every one of us, multiple panes of glass through our life as we grow yeah, and change. Time. And it's ex- not static. And it's not static. So that, standing in the middle of that room and realizing it doesn't challenge me to look through another pane of glass. It actually unfolds me. That's beautiful. I, I, I just make the ignorant assumption, I think, that there must be this great temptation to offer someone who is grieving or someone who is palliative or close to that dying phase that that has fears and questions and, and might come to you or to other other people in their life for answers. And the, the temptation, I think, is always there for all of us to offer our answers mm-hmm. to another. And I think there's inherently uh, challenges with that. And, and it's not always the, the appropriate response. It's just, oh, don't worry. You're going to be with that person soon. And well... How do you know that? <laughs> or maybe you believe that and this other person doesn't believe that. Or, uh, but, but we were tempted often to offer people these solutions or these neat and tidy packaged answers that like, don't worry, it's like this. Or this is what's going to happen. And, and we don't know. And so it's, it's challenging to, to do the work that you do to support people in our most difficult times. Uh, and going through the most difficult things that we can go through, which is loss and the facing of uh, the loss of our own lives and the lives of the people that are the, that mean the most to us. I think it is quintessentially human work. And ironically, it should be really easy for us because we are humans, after all, <laughs> homo sapiens sapiens. It should be the most natural thing for us to do is to sit with birth and to sit with death and everything in between. And yet it is a strangely complicated and hard work for us to learn how to be human. No kidding. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so, so glad that, uh, that you're up for doing this and that you're uh, willing to have another conversation where we can explore more of this in the future. Because to me, that w- exactly what you said is exactly what the Six Ways from Sunday podcast was intended to be about, is mm. to just wrestle with and unpack the infinite, like those panes of glass that you illustrated, to unpack the infinite um, questions that there are about how do we do this? <laughs> how do we navigate life as human being? How do we answer the most difficult questions that we all have just inherently in, in living out our human lives? And how do we equip ourselves with the tools to 
deal with those those things that arise and those questions. So, and you just had so much value today uh, for me personally, and I know for anyone listening to this that it's going to just rock people. So, Bill, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your wisdom and your gifts with our listeners and with the people that you work with all the time. Thank you. A real pleasure to have conversation with you and those that will listen to this. I wish you all wellness. Thank you, Bill. I'm looking forward to the next conversation. And thank you, everyone uh, who's listening today. We encourage you to leave a review, subscribe to the podcast, share this episode with friends and family that you think might get something out of it, and be well. Thanks again for listening.